So 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'll start here at verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no script prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we now turn to your word, I pray that you would please um, allow your word to speak mightily this morning. Lord, um, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. We pray that you would give me wisdom to speak it faithfully. Help us to be discerning as we listen. And we pray most of all, Lord, that your name is glorified, that your son would be seen and exalted, and uh, that your spirit would work in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we've been part of a series here in Second Peter and just unpacking the various aspects of it and um, going verse by verse through it. And so this morning we'll be dealing with verses 16 through 18. But we do have to remember what's come bef- gone before. We have to remember that everything Peter has said so far is anchored on what he calls the great and precious promises. So all of Scripture that uh, reveals God's truth, his glory, his greatness, his grace. And from there he turned to the call for holiness, to add to your faith, to build on the faith. And then last time we looked at verses 13 through 15 where Peter talks about his, his con- continuous desire that we remember these things. And that the legacy he leaves behind would be that the word of truth would be engrafted deep within us. That we would um, always be in remembrance of these vital truths. And it is from there, from that point of remembrance, that he raises the challenge. Because notice he starts here in verse 16 with the word for. And for is an explanatory conjunction because he's now going to explain the challenge to the word. And the scoffers, that they are challenging the idea of the truthfulness of the claims of the gospel. And so he will unpack that and defend the challenge. Or defend the, uh, yeah, what is being challenged. Notice, first of all, that he talks about um, when we made known unto you. I want to first just dwell on that. Notice the plural, when we made known unto you. It's not just Peter that's being attacked. It's the gospel message, the message of the apostles. It is the message of the preachers of the gospel. And at stake is really the essence of the promises of God. Then he goes on and he says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. The word for followed is a peculiar word. Um, it, just doesn't, it doesn't just talk about a general interest. It's not like, oh, I followed this for a while, like, you know, following a movie series or something or something like that. It's not general interest. The word there has a closeness attached to it, a, a serious commitment. These are the very things that Peter and the apostles have given themselves wholly to. 
Now, that's actually interesting to think about because we all have ultimate a priori commitments, things that we follow, whether we know that or not. You and I have core commitments. Even if you're not a Christian here this morning, you have core commitments that you follow. You might not think about them very often, but you do. And I'm always amazed when I talk to people, as I did this past week, I was talking with a very intelligent man, and he claims to be an agnostic And um, at the same time, he was making all sorts of moral judgments about things. And I said to him, I said, frankly, I don't understand. If you're agnostic about the the reality of God, how do you ground your moral uh, questions and and the things that you so struggle with and that we ought to do this or we should live with purpose and stuff like that? And, And he said to me, he didn't really have answers to that. And yet he was committed to the fact that these morals were real, that there is such a thing as purpose, but he had no idea how to ground it. He said, literally, I have to think about that. I don't know. And yet the commitments are there. You live with things. And so each one of us lives with purpose, identity, significance, and morality. And you may just not have ever thought about why. What am I committed to? Why am I committed to these things? Peter doesn't just follow these things willy-nilly. He's thought about these things, and he actually states that he's strongly committed to this because he's an eyewitness. And we're going to get into that in a second. First, we've got to deal with the accusation. He says, we have not followed cleverly devised fables. The Greek word here, and you might hear what it sounds like, is sufizo muthos. Those are the two roots of the Cleverly devised fables. So, sophistic myths. Sophistry. Myths that are made up by minds conjured up in the idea of control. Cult leaders is what we might think of. That's, that's the accusation, really, at some level. You guys made this stuff up so you could have a following, so that you could drive people into this business that you're trying to establish. And there are cults. And it's a very real thing, isn't it? The um, interesting thing is that these false teachers, we learn later in the epistle what drove them and why they would challenge the uh, apostles on these uh, very essential things. It's because they believe in what we would call now uniformitarianism, the idea that everything will stay the way it is. Everything will be stable. There's not going to be a cataclysmic end. In fact, if you flip to chapter 3, verse 4, you'll see the challenge. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And so that's the thing. They say, look, nothing's changing, Peter. You said that something's going to change at the end. It ain't happening. So you're making this stuff up. And you're just doing it so that you can drive people to to give their money, to follow after you, and to be afraid of something that's really not going to happen. And so they say all things are just normal. Over the years, I've uh, I've collected many books of people who attack Christianity. You know, you find them here and there used, and you're like, ah, I wouldn't mind having that as a reference. And so on my shelf, I've got uh, books from Charles Darwin, who says we're really nothing more than advanced apes. Right, if you take evolution to its logical ends there. Um, Bart Ehrman, misquoting Jesus, that we really don't know what the word of God is, and we've been misquoting him, and we, we just aren't sure. 
There's Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist who wrote The God Delusion. And he says that Christians are making God up. In fact, here's a quote from his book. He says, it is often said that there is a God-shaped gap in the brain which needs to be filled. We have a psychological need for God, an imaginary friend, a father, a big brother, a confessor, confidant. And the need has to be satisfied whether God exists or not. But could it be that God clutters up a gap that we'd better off, be better off filling with something else, perhaps science, art, human friendships, humanism? That's what he says we're doing. We're filling it up, cluttering that gap with God where there's a lot in front of us that we could use instead of God. In fact, he's kind of an annoyance almost. Even those within the circle of Christianity have claimed that we are following cleverly devised myths. There's the guy like Peter Enns, one seminary professor at Westminster, who had been let go, and his book, also on my shelf, How the Bible Actually Works, he says this, quote, The questions of right and wrong morality only comes up when we expect from the Bible, get this, timeless, unchanging facts about God. That's quite a challenge. And so he's saying, we've, we've got the Bible wrong. We've got to think about how the Bible really works. And Peter's been dealing with this challenge. We get dealt with these challenges. That's very real. You see, Satan is hell-bent to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ, to devalue its parts, just here and there, to depreciate its worth, to question its claims. And he does this so that you and I will be dislodged, so that we'll fall away. We'll be here for a while. Oh yeah, I tried that Christian stuff. I went to church for a lot of years, but it's not true. It didn't do anything for me. And you just leave. It's over. It's done with. Maybe you felt the heat of those attacks on the gospel. Perhaps it was a co-worker. Perhaps it was a friend, family member, a teacher at school. Maybe when you get those attacks, you don't know what to say. Maybe they make you unsure and you wonder, well, what should I really do? So Peter here explains and he defends the truth of what they are saying. Remember, they say, all things will continue. He's not coming. That's the challenge, and that's exactly where he's going. Notice what it says. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some theologians here say it's referring to his first coming. That's what's being talked about, but I don't think that's the case. The Greek word that's used here for the word coming is parousia. It means the presence And um, in Greek culture, in Hellenistic culture, that term was used for the arrival of a god or a ruler. That was their culture, what they taught. But the word, more specifically, in the New Testament itself, parousia, is always, when referring to Christ, used for his second coming, his his end-time presence, his return. In fact, the term first coming 
didn't even exist in modern Christian or in Christianity until about the second century, but that's the first time we actually see it mentioned in that way. So parousia, second coming, that which is to uh, happen at the end of time. And therefore, think about what that means. The challenge is about the future. The challenge is not about Christ, the suffering, meek human being that walked on this earth. The challenge is about the Christ who is to come with all of his claims of glory and admiration. In fact, if you look at verse 11, Peter talks about that again. Look at verse 11. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter has already referenced it. And he says it's vital. Think about it. Like if, if Jesus isn't coming back, why busy ourselves with church and with holiness? Because it's all going to flop in the end anyways. We're just going to be buried and it's over. Paul would say if this life is all we have, we are of most, all men most miserable if there's no resurrection from the dead, no return of Christ. Peter does not minimize that end time coming of Christ. He calls it the parousia, the presence. But he also calls it a coming in power. Look at the text. The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he say that? Because first of all, it will be a day of judgment. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. He says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There is a day of judgment coming. And that's what this world is not interested in. These false teachers don't want to think about that because that means accountability. And there's some of you here this morning that are maybe thinking, I'm not really accountable to anyone. I'm my own master. I determine my own destiny. And Peter's like, no way. The day of power is coming for you and for me. Paul would write that to the Thessalonians, wouldn't he? When he says, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know not God and what he says next, and obey not the gospel of of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the what? The glory of his power. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. You see, on that day, nothing will be hidden. All things will be seen. You will be seen for who you are. I will be seen for who I am. The blazing holiness of God will cause the wicked, it says in Revelation chapter 6, to scream for the mountains to fall upon them and for the rocks to hide them, rocks to hide them from the face of the Lamb, from the wrath of Him who is to come. That's one part of the power. The other part of the power we also see in Second Peter and that would be the transformational power of his coming. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Or really, I'll start here at verse 12, when it says, Looking for and hastening, hastening unto the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And so part of this power is not just judgment, it's hope, it's expectation. All things will be made new. 
For the Christian, we will, we will be with Christ forever and ever. We'll be on the transformed heaven and earth. There's not going to be cancer anymore. There's no longer going to be tornadoes and cataclysmic earthquakes, things like that. It'll be over. And so the power of Christ will transform all things. And everyone, from Adam to the last born person, will enter into the eternal state. One side or the other. You know, we're so so prone to domesticate the power of Christ. Whereas the Bible calls us to tremble and stand in awe of the power of our great God. You know, we can get so busy with our work, raising our families, trying to figure out what we're going to do with our day off, that we lose sight of that which is soon to take place, that which is just beyond the horizon. And we forget about that. And we don't rivet our minds and our attention to the return of Christ. And we become functional uniformitarians. All things just going to continue as they are. Is the second coming of Christ important to your day to day? Does it affect you and your thinking? Is it important? Absolutely it's important. Think about what's bound up in that coming. Eternity we talked about. Destination we've talked about. Purpose. Why do you do what you do? Hope. Accountability. Justice. Judgment. Glory. Eternal righteousness. You tell me. Are those trivial things? I don't think so. Peter says then. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The word there but is very important. Because it's a strong contrasting word. It's a, not a regular uh, well, there's two words in Greek that can be a contrast. This is the strong one. But we're eyewitnesses. The word for eyewitnesses is very rare. In fact, it's only used here. In the entire New Testament in the Greek, it's only here. Peter peculiarly takes this one. In Hellenistic culture, in classical Greek, the word is n- nuanced carefully because the regular word for an eyewitness would be autoptai or autopso. And that just means we saw this thing. But this one means careful and close inspection and observation. And so Peter, taking the challenge, says, Oh no, oh no, I didn't just see these things. We carefully saw and inspected what was taking place when we made known unto you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were privileged spectators. In fact, in classical Greek, this word was used for the final initiation into a higher mystery. Now, that's not what it means per se, but it does talk about privileged insight. And then Peter goes to that one unique event, the transfiguration. That's where he heads. He's narrowing in on that event. And it's really amazing. Notice the plural in the text. But we were eyewitnesses. Who are the we? There's only three. Peter, James, and John. The inner circle. The close disciples. They would be the ones that would witness this thing. Strikingly, that's according with scripture. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Witnesses. 
and we have two or three witnesses there at this event. Now, this raises a question. If the challenge is uniformitarianism, all things will just continue as they were, why would he bring up the transfiguration? What's he doing? What do you think? Why not the miracles of Christ? Why not the resurrection? That certainly talks about his power. No, he talks about the transfiguration. And it's because the transfiguration is that one time at which the disciples, before his death and resurrection, would see the radiant splendor of Jesus Christ before he would take office, before he was coronated into heaven. It would be what some theologians call an investiture. That means his formal bestowment or presentation of his majestic office. His formal bestowal of or presentation of his majestic office. They call it a foretaste. Because what happened on that mountain was a brief foretaste and a guarantee of the certainty of Christ's majesty. In fact, all of the synoptic gospels, that's the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record something before the transfiguration that brings our mind to its reason. Let's turn to Mark for a second. Mark chapter 8. This is one of those places where chapter breaks are very annoying, but we'll just brush past them. So we'll start here at Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now get this. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All three Gospels talk about our lives, our accountability, and his return. And then he says this, chapter 9, verse 1, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now some people think that's referring to the fall of Jerusalem. May very well be. I just think it's striking that in all three Gospels, the next thing that we get is the transfiguration after six days. Jesus taking Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured in front of them. But it's linked to the coming, the return of Christ. The coming, the majesty, Peter would call it in this text, right? When we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The glory of Christ for 33 years was veiled. He came meek and lowly. He had nowhere to lay his head. 
He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That is who Jesus was for 33 years. But in that one moment, the veil for a minute was taken away for a short time, and the Son of Righteousness, as he's called in the Old Testament, shone before them in pure, radiant splendor. Now, as I do once in a while, I forgot to mention I had points, and all of that wrapped up my first point, which I will just tell you my points. I've done this before, because I want to make sure you have all these points. The first, This point would be called Hoping in a Coming Savior. The next point that we're going to go to now is the hoping in a glorious Savior. And then lastly, I hope to remember, we'll go to hoping in a royal Savior. So just if those who like to have points want to remember. Sorry about that. So hoping in a glorious Savior would be the next point. Because Peter goes on to explain this even further. You'd think verse 16 is enough. Why do you need more? He adds further explanation to now really ground the truthfulness, the veracity of what he's saying. And so, again, four, he received from God the Father honor and glory. From God the Father. The whole point that we're going to see unpacked in these next phrases is the source of this claim. It didn't come from men. It didn't come from angels. This was an unmediated claim of who Jesus Christ is. Right in the Old Testament, it talks about the law mediated through angels. We've got the prophets. But here, God alone speaks directly from God. And notice how he says it. He talks about the Father. And later he talks about the Son. It is within the bounds and the bonds of covenant love, eternal covenant love. And so he talks about the honor and glory that Jesus Christ would be invested with at this time. What is honor? It speaks of the worth of Christ. What is glory? It speaks of the fame of Christ. All those things were unpacked. And think about it. As is the nature of the king, as is the honor and the glory of the king, so is the honor and the glory of the kingdom which he establishes, right? A great king establishes a great kingdom. A lousy king establishes a lousy kingdom. But this king gets invested by the very honor and glory that comes from the Father. Our world is so busy chasing after the things of this world, the passing honors, the passing glory. Think about what, if you turn on the TV and you watch the news, what they talk about, the stars in Hollywood, the rich, the powerful, those who have <clears throat> made their claim in business, the business titans. What a pitiful, what a passing, what a fading glory those things are compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. They can't hold a candle to who Jesus is. Ours is the Lord who has been coronated to the highest place, the greatest glory. And so this morning our call to worship was from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. Jehovah Sabaoth, he is the king of glory. You know, you think about it, that whole psalm, 
at the beginning, if you remember it, is all about who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall abide in his holy presence. His holy presence, what do you need? Clean hands, a pure heart. And then the king comes in, Jesus Christ, the only one worthy to go into the throne room of God. And all of us are called to lift up our heads and the gates open up for Jesus Christ and him alone. None else can claim that spot. And so he's invested with that. And then notice what Peter says next. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. Again, Peter picking up on peculiar words here. Such a voice. It's only used again here in the entire New Testament, that particular word. Philip Schaff, one of the commentators I like to consult, he says this, the voice is called such a voice. That is to say, such as I am now to record, or perhaps a voice so wonderful in kind. We are invited to think for a moment about what these apostles heard, that God would speak to man. And they were allowed to listen. You ever heard the statement, oh, I wish I was a fly on the wall to hear what was going on there or there? These apostles were allowed to even be present at this point at which Christ was transfigured. And it goes on and he talks about when there came such a voice. Now you think, man, this guy's really micro-sifting every word here. It's because every word is so peculiar in Peter's language here. This word for came is pharaoh. It means to be born. Now you think, okay, fine. What's so unique about that? Here's what's unique. If you've read the rest of these verses in this chapter as we did this morning, You particularly may have thought about verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If you've looked that up, it's the same word. In fact, that word Pharaoh only gets used a few amount of times when it speaks of something with respect to God. And when it speaks of what God does, it means peculiar revelation that comes from God. And Peter will use it four times within these verses. In verse 17, it's here. When there came or was born such a voice. Verse 18, and this voice which was born or came from heaven we heard. Verse 21, for the prophecy was born, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried or born by the Holy Ghost. What this emphasizes, if you missed it, is that the source of this voice is not a fable. It's not a made-up myth. We are speaking this morning about the very words of God that they witnessed and heard spoken. And so we should stand in awe of the word of God. If you have any regard for the Bible this morning, if you believe this is the scripture, these very words were carried, born by the Holy Ghost as these men spoke. And so Peter giving the ultimate stamp on authority on that voice, he says this, from the excellent glory. Again, using another one of those, what we would call hapax, only used once words. He does it again. He's, don't miss it. He's pulling all the stops here. He's going to lay it on thick so that we know that Jesus Christ was coronated, invested by none other than the highest authority, the highest claim 
was laid on Jesus Christ. What would you do if you had a minute with the audience of a great noble or a great leader? What would you be willing to give up? Peter and James and John had this moment given to them where they would hear God himself. And so without any higher court, the false teachers are refuted by the sheer excellency of this revelation. There's no higher court you can go to. You can't trump God. That's his point. You can't go over his head. You can't get around him. There is no higher appeal. This is it. The supreme court has spoken. And so, dear people, this morning, if you believe that, if you believe this is not a myth, what are we called to do? We are called to humility. We are called to tremble before the holy God and to scoff the message, to question the message because of where it came from. It's blasphemy. How dare we challenge the word of our sovereign. Reminded me of Zechariah 2.13. It's a good word to remember. Be silent, O flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Can you just imagine in the heavenly courts, picture it, the sovereign getting up. He's about to speak. The angels down. False teachers made up myth. Really? Really? And so Peter then gets into the words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He talks about the pronouncement because the pronouncement is so important. Now what's interesting is in the Gospels and the Synoptics, they're all a little bit different. Peter's is closest to that of Matthew's. A little bit different here. I'm going to read them both. Peter, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Do you hear the difference? Hear ye him. In fact, Mark and Luke will also say, hear ye him. We'll get to that in a second, why that's missing. But two references of the Old Testament just jump out at this moment. They are Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold... My servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And so we are called this morning in that pronouncement to behold the chosen servant. The other one, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That is the Old Testament anchor to this claim. And so God the Father in this pronouncement is taking all of the prophetic word and particularly laying hold of those two prophecies that are looking ahead to the coming of this day, this pronouncement, this investiture. Christ, the royal heir, the great chosen servant of God, the one who would obey. Now, when I read those two references, Matthew and Peter, and we listen to what's missing. In the Greek, there are actually a few more changes. You don't see them in the translation, but they are peculiar. And one of them is this. 
that Peter uses what we would call an emphatic I, I, whom in, in whom I am well pleased. And he does that, I believe, to stress God's peculiar status as the only one that really matters. Do we need the courts of earth to establish the worth of Jesus Christ? Do you need your fellow man to know that Jesus is Lord and then only he's Lord? Absolutely not. Do the politicians of our country have any bearing on the status of Jesus Christ? No. Is the stamp of legitimacy needed by any created thing, angels, humans, you name it? No. God the Father says, in whom I am well pleased. Let that appraisal of God be the one that matters to you. None other. None other. And so Peter, like I said, leaves out, hear ye him, or listen to him. The reason is because, remember, we had Moses and Elijah there. The point of that in the, in the Gospels is that Jesus is of greater authority than Moses and Elijah. The word of Christ, subsumed in Jesus Christ. But that's not Peter's point here. Peter's point is not so much the fulfillment of the prophetic word as the glory of the Lord himself, the glory of the one in front of them. Also, when it says, this is my beloved son, is God himself is saying, all of the hopes of Israel, all of the hopes of humanity are bound up in this one. Don't run to Mohammed's. Don't run to your mosques. Don't run to this world, to your governments. Don't run to yourself. Run to this one. Flee to this one. The pleasure of God the Father rests on Jesus Christ. There's one more difference in this pronouncement that doesn't come out in our English at all. And that is the difference between en-ha and ace-ha. Ace is directional. En is locative. And this one goes directional. He uses the directional word. Why is that? It's almost as if Peter is particularly picking up on that word to say this. You're all looking somewhere. You're all putting your hope in something or somewhere, someone. And he says, in this one, look that way. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him. Love him. Know him. Worship him. Take your face and move it towards him because we so want to go somewhere else. It's our gravity and our sinful hearts to be pulled to this world, to get so consumed with our, our trucks, our guns, our sports, our education, our families, and we, we forget about the one that really matters. Jesus Christ, as we see here, alone is the Messiah, the anointed king and servant. Alone, the rule and the sonship belong to him. Mission and suffering will be fulfilled by him. He is the king. He is the redeemer. He is the lion. He is the lamb. Look to the Savior. This one, beloved. This one we need. And him alone. And so that takes us to our last point. Number three, hoping in a royal Savior. Verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And so Peter has destroyed any of the charges of cleverly devised myths. And to put it to rest once and for all, he repeats what? The heavenly origin one last time. 
and this voice which came from heaven we heard from heaven your source is God's throne now it's easy to miss what Peter says next and I thought this was super fascinating because I missed it and just looking at the commentaries a bit and it's like one of them just laid it out here pretty quickly and I was like oh yeah wow wow it's one of those moments right and it's when he says and this voice which came from heaven we heard we heard what's going on here why does he say that Remember in verse 16, I said that the word for we, um, we were witnesses, eyewitnesses, was the peculiar spectators. They were peculiarly looking, privileged spectators. That's your eye gate, your eye senses. Now he's talking about your ear senses. He's not only saying I'm an eyewitness, we were also ear witnesses of these things. The worth of Christ is to be both seen and heard. In fact, the joining of eye and ear in the Bible are thick throughout the Bible. But I'll pick up John, who does the identical thing. First John chapter 1 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, ears, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled the word of life. And then verse 3 says it again, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Throughout Scripture, Eye and ear presents the authenticity of the witness. Both gates are used. Both senses are used. And now I want to just pull that into something even more striking. Because if those things matter for the authenticity of the witness, now he's going to, we're going to see that there's an implicit location that's meant beyond that. And I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 13, when Jesus unpacks the kingdom. Matthew 13. So the great kingdom parables. Verse 10. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him it shall be given. And he that... And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables. And here it goes. That seeing, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, by hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's, what? Heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted. And then what's next? And I should heal them. Peter is taking the challenge of the ear witnessing, the eye witnessing, right? Oh, you're making this stuff up. And he gets down implicitly to the core problem of these false teachers. It's a heart problem. Dull of hearing, dull of seeing. They didn't see it. 
Their heart wasn't changed. That's the core problem. There's nothing wrong with the authenticity of the message of who Jesus Christ is. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning, is my eye open and are my ears open to hear the voice of the shepherd this morning? That's the real question. And so Peter will close this little section off and he will build on it further next time, saying, when we were with him in the holy mount. Don't miss this last point. What mount? Different mountains have been suggested. Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon, the Temple Mount. We simply don't know which mountain it is. And so forget about which mountain. But look at how this mountain is described. The holy mount. The heights of a mountain represents the heights of heaven's throne. Throughout scripture, it's always the hills, the mountains, the gods. The the divine council is up there. But this is the holy mount. Because we don't care about the mountains of the gods. We care about the throne room of God Almighty. And this is the holy, holy mount. Because God is there. That's what makes it holy. Calvin would say this. Wherever the Lord comes, as he is the fountain of all holiness, that place is holy. Remember when God appeared to Moses. Take thy feet from off thy sandals. Or thy sandals from off thy feet. For thou art on holy ground. Same thing to Joshua. Take thy shoes off because you are on holy ground. Don't tarnish my presence with the common. Where God is, it is infinitely holy. And Peter, James, and John standing there in the blazing center of God's presence would be in the presence of holiness. Oh, that we would know the power of the coming and majesty of Jesus Christ. Do you remember I said this all references Psalm 2? This is my son, my begotten. Remember that? Well, Peter, he knew the whole psalm. Read your psalms when you're at home. But he knew what comes right before that. Guess what it says? It's the only time we get a mountain described with holiness. Verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill Zion. God does that. He establishes Christ as royal king, his holy place of presence. Literally in the Hebrew, it goes like this. I thought it was interesting. It says, and I, I have anointed my king upon Zion, Zion, my holy hill. The anointing, the establishment of Christ as king is in this place of presence. What's Psalm 2 all about? Why does God draw us back to Psalm 2? Of all things. What else do we see in the psalm? The tension between the kings of the world and the kingdom of our Christ. Remember that. It, it says in Psalm 2 verse 10 and 11. Uh, it's psalm 2 verse 10 through 12. It says, be wise now therefore, O ye kings of the earth. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with thee, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. That's what we're called to do this morning. We are called to announce to the nations, to herald to our kings, to our rulers, to our parliamentarians, to one another, the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. And he is calling you and I, he's calling the nations to bow the knee to King Jesus. And if you have not yet bowed the knee, If you have not called him Lord and Savior in life, you will one day. 
No matter what, everybody will know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. There will be no escaping it. Remember when Jesus, just before he would go and take his place in heaven at his throne, he says, all authority and power has been given unto me. And what are we to do? Go, go, go into all the world and make disciples, followers of all nations. That's what we're supposed to do. Make followers. That's the commission for you and me this morning. Make followers. Herald the kingship of Christ. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of the church. He is Lord of our government. He is Lord of education. He is Lord of the family. He is Lord of every sphere of life. Jesus alone is Lord. And this king in an amazing act of mercy, stooped down as the servant, died for sinners, died for for rebels. And he's willing to clothe beggars like you and I with his robes of access, his rich, divine life for us, given. And so this king is not just a majestic king, a powerful king. He is a tender king for you and for me. Do you hear the voice of God's anointed calling you to bow the knee? I'm going to close here with the last phrase of Psalm six or Psalm two, verse 12b here. Did you know how it ends? Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Trusting him, we serve him who is victorious. What seems like defeats on this world, whether it's sickness whether it's government issues, whether it's family struggles, whether it's unbelievers, all defeats are dwarfed by the victory we have in Jesus Christ. Death itself will be swallowed up in victory. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There shall be no more sorrow, no more death, for the old order of things, it won't just stay. It will pass away. And he will make all things new. He will vindicate his name among those who hold fast. Hold fast to my name, he says. And he will lead us, his people, into the new Jerusalem. And then, and then we will forever be with the Lord. This time on this planet is but a blip compared to eternity. Don't get so busy with that which is temporal. Look for the eternal. And don't get coaxed into the idea that this is a myth. Is this a myth? Are we making this up? Not at all. This is our sure and final and steadfast hope. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us the majesty of Jesus Christ, the coming of his kingdom in power. And so, Lord, I pray that we would humbly bow before you that we would worship you for who you are that we would look for the day of your return oh Lord hasten that day Maranatha come Lord Jesus and do pray for any soul here who doesn't know Jesus Christ that they would they would come to know him that you would break hearts that you would unplug the eyes and the ears that don't perceive and understand Lord that we would hear the eyewitness the earwitness of your word, in Jesus' name, amen.